Dolomiti Sound Stories. We are in Ortizae and we're waiting to go up the Rasecha with this rack railway cable car. We will go up towards the Rasecha or Rasecha as we say in the, the Latin language. So now we're off. Wir starten. It's wonderful to go up here because from here you can see the town getting smaller and slowly it opens out and you can see the whole landscape, the whole panorama. Hmm. Today it's a bit cloudy but you can still see the mountains. As long as it doesn't start raining. Here in front of us are the Siusi Alps, the Sassolungo, and behind there is the Sesceda and uh, the Pitch Peak. Here we are essentially on the border of the Dolomites, where they begin, and, and then to the west it opens out to see all of them.
Well, I can't show you anything here. The mountains are, are all hidden by the fog. I'm sorry, it's, it's a shame, because here normally there is an incredible view. And down below it wasn't even raining, but now... Here there are some pastures. <laughs> the cows don't like the rain either. Yo me llamo Ingrid Rungaldir. My name is Ingrid Rungaldir. I'm a translator by profession and in my free time I write and do research. I'm interested mainly in history, history about women, of alpinism, um, of all minorities of all types, and so I have a lot to study. I started becoming interested in female alpinism because I myself grew up in a family of alpinists. My father was an alpine guide and my mother also climbed. Um, my father was also for many years the head of the alpine rescue team and here we also have the, the headquarters of the rescue team. And this was in a time when mobile phones didn't exist yet and so you can imagine that it wasn't easy. My mother would have to stay home by the phone and even if she went into the garden to grab a lettuce, <laughs> of course there was that call from someone who needed help. And this really characterized uh, quite a lot my, my upbringing. And at a certain point I asked myself, where are all the women? Because I only knew male alpinists, um, even some famous ones, but I never really saw any women climbers. Yeah, there was a client or two of my father's, but even all the books that we had at home on alpinism were obviously books by men, about men. And so I started to look amongst archives and to interview alpinists that I had come across. And very quickly I found that there were a lot of women who, who had written, as it were, the history on alpinism. But they didn't know each other and they didn't know about each other because they themselves weren't really talking about themselves and they didn't write about themselves and of course men weren't doing it for them. And so in a piece of research that went on for many years, I wrote a book about female alpinism with the title Women Going Up, Frauen in Ausstieg, precisely because I wanted to show that going up wasn't just about mountain tops and climbing 
but it was a social matter too. Because albinism isn't neither female nor male, it can't be separated from the rest of society. It's all a story with various developments and evolutions. And if we want to talk about female albinism, we can also talk about, I don't know, women in art, in science and politics or so on. We shouldn't even talk about male albinism and female albinism separately. It's only that the women in society had a different starting point to the men. If we think about the fact that before women couldn't even go to school or university, their place was the family, you know, the home look after the children, was the private place, uh, not the public one. They couldn't have positions of any kind, professions, public positions and so on. And for this reason, often they weren't even allowed to go to the mountains or, or do sport or even ride a bicycle. And it's because of this that we talk about female alpinism and male alpinism separately, because the women were an exception. Cortina, d'Ampezzo, la tradizione alpinistica affonda le radici eh, nel passato. In Cortina d'Ampezzo, the alpine tradition is embedded in the roots of the past. We are about halfway through the 1800s when climbing becomes something to do only in occasion of hunting. But slowly, someone starts to create an activity which is, is now very much identified with the Dolomitic Hollow. In particular, Paul Grumman, originally from Vienna, moves to the Dolomites in 1862, and already a year later, he has climbed the heights of almost all the Ampets and mountaintops. Francesco Lecitelli from Maleris is a countryman, a, a watchmaker, and he lives in Cortina d'Ampezzo. In 1862-63, he's already of a certain age, and he's the chosen accompanier of Paul Grumman. Together they do numerous climbs, and Paul Grumman is really enthusiastic about them in his book, Wanderung in den Dolomiten, a book that is the milestone of tourism in the Dolomites, because thanks to this publication, many people start to arrive in the area to transform them completely. Paul Grumman dice, era la miglior guida disponibile. Paul Grumman said he was the best guide around. He showed exceptional qualities, strength, resistance, agility, and a courage that proved he didn't fear obstacles. You know, lots of traditions, habits. But he also had a great sense of direction and a lot of ambition. Checco von Maleres, or Francesco Lacidelli, becomes one of the first guides from Ampezzo. In fact, it's precisely Paul Groman, the secretary of the first sector of the Ampetzen section of the Alpenverein, the Austro-Hungarian Alpine Club, to give Checco von Maleres the number one spot as an alpine guide. Fai saltare la corda su quello spuntone. Ale, bravo! 
Siamo sotto la falesia dei Crepe d'Eucera. We are underneath the crag of the Crepe d'Eucera. It's the most popular of the crags that you can climb in this area. Crepe means exactly the wall of a rock or a crag. It's a toponym which is very common in the Ampeds and Latin language. We are at an altitude of 1,700-1,800. And this crag is a long rocky area in a forest along a road that takes you from Cortina to Passo Giau. The crag is facing south. Today it's pretty hot and uh, here it's fun to climb in, in this kind of natural open-air gym. I'm Franco Gaspari, I work as a mountain guide in Cortina d'Ampezzo. Also, I'm in the mountain rescue team and I'm a member of the Squirrels, which is a private climbing club here in Cortina. Basically, Cortina d'Ampezzo is at the end of the Boite Valley. The initial part of the Boite Valley is very narrow and tortuous. It goes around the Mount Antelao. But when it gets to San Vito, it undergoes a further narrowing and then opens onto a very wide, large basin. That's because there are two lateral valleys which converge here, one being Passo Falsarego and the other Passo Tre Croci. This valley is blessed with amazing mountains and sunny spots. It's crowded to the north by very beautiful mountains and to the south where the sun enters by low mountains, which therefore allows the sun to enter the valley very well. In this area, tourism started with foreigners, first of all with English people, because as rulers of an empire they were used to traveling, and they were also extremely rich. In fact, we've had some examples of truly wealthy Englishmen here. Here in the Ladin Valleys, in the Dolomites Valley, we've had more tourists from the north of Europe than from Italy. And that's mainly because we were with Austria. So being Austrians, it was easier to have contacts with Hungarians, with Austrians, with Germans, than with Italians. After the First World War, when we became a part of Italy, tourism became predominantly Italian, although now we have a lot of foreigners, especially off-season. Italians come mainly in the summer months, like August. Here tourism was born in the summer. The first hotels here date back to the mid-19th century and didn't have heating, so there was no work during the winter, also because there was no need to work at all. Skiing didn't exist, so it was only about mountaineering. Cortina has always had a road that crossed the town itself from north to south. 
It's thought that this road also existed in Roman times. That means that the logistics for Cortina were very important, as this road had always been known because people could get there comfortably. And after 1830, when the state road from Alemania was built, which at the time seemed a highway, people came here even more easily. Tourism here was born in the Dolomites, it was born in Cortina. The other valleys remained very isolated until more than half of the 19th century. Valgardena and Valbadia were beautiful places, but they were also isolated, and so they weren't very accessible to tourists. The first tourist, however, who discovered the Dolomites as a mountaineer, was Paul Groman, a young Viennese who arrived here in 1863. He wanted to climb all the mountains systematically, starting from Cortina, then those in this area of the Dolomites. He did so accompanied not by alpine guides, because at the time there was no Austrian alpine club yet. The figure of the alpine guide only arrived in 1871 with the Austrian national law. So basically he relied on chamois hunters. The chamois was the last prey left here after the Middle Ages. As high up in the mountains, it was difficult to hunt. And in the valley floor, everything had disappeared. That's because people had eaten everything. Therefore, there was no tourism, just a lot of starvation. Even roe deer, groundhog, and other animals no longer existed because they'd eaten those too. So the chamois remained the only coveted prey in those years. It was the only animal that could be hunted. The chamois lives in very inaccessible places high up in the mountains, and therefore chamois hunting involved being mountaineers. It's actually with these hunters that Paul Groman conquered all the peaks here around Cortina, including the Marmolada. The first year he was accompanied by an elder, Francesco Lacedelli, who was over 60 years old. We must consider that at the time 60 was a truly advanced age by the standards of the time. Paul let Francesco take him, for example, for the first climb he did on the second Tofana. There's a curious story about it. When Paul arrived on the fork, the Forcella Pontana Negra, where there's the crossroads between the two Tofane, the first Tofana and the second Tofana, Lacidelli asked Paul, where do you want to go, on the first or on the second one? And he replied, I want to go on the highest one. Then Lacidelli took him to the second, but he didn't know that it was the highest one. He just guessed and was lucky, because there was actually only a 20-meter difference between the two. Groman founded the Alpenverein, the Austrian Alpine Club, in 1862, when he came to Cortina, and he appointed some guides himself, because the appointment of guides was something that was up to the Alpine guide, as the Italian Kai appointed guides until many years ago. And so he appointed these first hunters as Alpine guides, even though they had not taken any kind of exam or test. Then, in 1871, Austria legislated and regulated the profession of the mountain guide. 
A booklet was issued as a license on which the client had to write what the guy did and how he behaved. This represents a huge advantage for those who study the history of mountain climbing because thanks to the booklets, now we know what they did day by day, who they went with and how they behaved. For example, we know that Antonio Di Mai, who was one of the most important guides before Angelo Di Bona at the turn of the 20th century, he had some really rich clients, such as Albert, the King of Belgium. They said that in the past a mountain guide could buy a cow with what he earned from a day of work. Nowadays I can't even buy a cat with what I get paid for a day as a mountain guide. The storm in the mountains is really the worst thing that can happen to you. It's dangerous. You're going off for a climb and then from one moment to another the weather changes and you can find yourself in difficulty. Once I was with this group and I knew the weather was supposed to worsen, but literally from one second to another we were in the middle of hell and everything got dark. There was lightning, thunder and water. Above all, the water that scared me. Because when it starts to rain, water literally cascades from the mountains. So you find yourself surrounded by all this water and the temperature changes and it becomes freezing cold. And then, you know, it depends if you're with good people that walk even in the rain. And because the ground becomes slippy, uh, it depends also if you have the right equipment. And for that reason, you also have a lot of responsibility. You need to be able to, to give up, you know, to not carry on with the climbs. You need to say, stop, let's go back because it's becoming dangerous. The longer you do your job, the more you see the danger. So you decide to give up earlier. And then what I say is, you know, the mountain will always be there, but I can lose my life in a second. And so if it's not the time to go, then enough. You need to be able to understand when it's not the right time. You need to give up, to know how to give up. I had the opportunity to meet Tamara Lunga, an extreme alpinist, and she spoke to me about the, the winter expedition to Naga Parbat, where she was the only woman on a rope made up of other three male alpinists. On the day of the climb, she had problems acclimatizing and felt, but by then she was already in a critical condition. And so she decided to play it safe. 
Tamara wants she arrived at 100 meters out of the 8,000 to reach the top. She turned around and started to go down by herself towards the base camp. When you find yourself at a high altitude, doing a rescue this high up becomes difficult for everybody involved. This is also part of life, you know, learning to give up. Even if you are there and you wanted to be the first woman to reach the top of the peak, but life is more important. Queste pioniere dell'alpinismo forse potremmo citare un nome come Beatrice Thomason. Amongst these pioneers of alpinism, perhaps we could mention a name like Beatrice Thomason, who was the first woman together with Michele Bettega and Bartolo Zagonel to climb the southern face of the Marmolada in 1901. And it's typical that we say about the writing on alpinism is that after having done the climb, some would doubt the whole, the whole thing, the whole expedition. Why? Precisely for the reason that she was a woman. She climbed this path with weather perhaps a bit like today, not great. And she got hit by a rock on the head, uh, but she wasn't discouraged by this. And she finished the climb rather well. Beatrice Thomason fu una tipica pioniera dell'alpinismo. Beatrice Thomason wasn't a typical pioneer of alpinism because in the moment in which she did this climb, she wasn't the youngest of climbers, she was uh, around 40. She came from a, a well-off family and she was independent because she had her, her job. She worked as a translator, a writer and a governess also for an English family. And she was atypical also because of the fact that she didn't have any children or a husband that, you know, stopped her from climbing. She was a real free person. Dolomiti Sound Stories is a voice production for Dolomiti Superski. Narrator voices, Margherita Menardi and Ulrike Innerkofler. Director, Gianluca Stazzi and Paolo Barberi. Original music, Gianluigi Gallo. Sound and post-production, Gianluca Stazzi. Editing and additional post-production, Alessio Abeli. Editorial support, Elisa Cozzolino. Producers. Andrea Maltagliati and Giovanna Surace. English dubbers Beth McCreaton and Marco Quaglia.